I'm Livy Burdett, and you're listening to The Bruno Brief from the Brown Daily Herald and WBRU. Each week, we take you inside one of the Brown Daily Herald's top stories. This week, we give you an update on the case of Jamal Gonzalez, a 24-year-old Providence resident who was left in a coma after a moped crash involving Providence police officers last October. In January, Rhode Island Attorney General Peter Naronha announced that the officers involved in the crash would not face criminal charges, citing too little evidence of criminal recklessness. In the wake of the announcement, Gonzalez's family has filed a civil lawsuit against the officers involved. Today, we'll speak with Carlos Bautista, a senior staff writer at The Herald who covered this story. Welcome back to the show, Carlos. Hi, thanks for having me. So first off, could you describe for our listeners what exactly happened to Gonzalez on October 18th? Yeah, so on October 18th, Jamal Gonzalez was on a moped and he was involved in a crash that left him critically injured. One police cruiser was following him and according to different videos and accounts, the police cruiser led Gonzalez to direct his moped off the road onto the sidewalk. And while he was doing that, another cruiser pulled up in front of him. So that way the cruisers made a sort of L shape that prevented Gonzalez from getting out of that. And one of the cruisers hit a stop sign, which in turn hit Gonzalez in the head, leading to severe injuries. And that put him in a coma for weeks. While he's no longer in a coma now, according to his attorney, Amado DeLuca, he still has trouble with cognitive functioning um, and is severely neurologically impaired. So for this story, you got to speak with Gonzalez's father. What did he have to say about how Jamal is doing? I spoke with him a good deal ago, but at the time when I was speaking with him, he was mentioning that Gonzalez was still in long-term care in New Jersey. And in speaking with one of the attorneys representing Gonzalez on Thursday, that while Gonzalez was able to come out of his coma, he still had trouble speaking, recognizing people, being able to ascertain his physical location where he was. A young man that had so much going on for him, him being disabled now for a traffic citation could be better and could be worse. That's what I'm known for saying. That's what I say to everyone when they say how he's doing. Could be better, could be worse. I, I try not to pray too much to ask God for things and just give thanks for what I have already received. Like my son's still breathing. So I know that pretty quickly after this incident happened, it became a big topic of conversation and protest in the Providence community. But the Herald first covered this story in November when Brown students got involved in protests after Jamal's crash. Can you tell us why they were protesting? Right. Yeah. This crash followed, as we all know, a summer of activism following the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor by police officers. And so thinking about organizing against police brutality at large involved thinking about what happened to Jamal Gonzalez and seeing what could be done at a local level to address a larger national issue. Can you explain why they saw this as specifically an issue of police brutality? Because I know the different sides are arguing over how much evidence there is that it was reckless or negligent or or even um, intentional. In speaking with different students and also Gonzalez's father and Kia Bryant from Dare. Overall, what they would say would be that he wasn't breaking any law. So the fact that he is was left in such perilous condition doesn't seem, at least to protesters and community members, to be requisite to what actually happened leading up to the crash. 
And how does Gonzalez's family plan on responding to the attorney general's decision not to press charges against the officers involved in this crash? Right, yeah. So given that any avenues for criminal charges or criminal accountability are pretty much off the table, given the attorney general's decision, the family is now seeking civil recourse through a lawsuit that alleges that the officers involved with the crash committed civilly negligent action. Do Gonzalez's family and attorneys believe that they have a strong case? Yes. So when I spoke with one of the attorneys representing Jamal Gonzalez, Amada DeLuca, he was saying that the actions taken by the officers, at least according to his suit, he alleges that they took aggressive tactics against Gonzalez that resulted in a violation of Gonzalez's civil rights. And that in being able to pursue this sort of civil action, that they'll be able to receive compensation for the injuries that he suffered. There are two police officers, in our opinion, that were involved in this incident with Jamal. One was the police officer that was following him, that actually struck a stop sign that hit Jamal in the head, which caused the severe injuries that he had. And the other one was a police officer who was stopped at a stop sign as Jamal and this other police officer in another vehicle approached him and then pulled out in front of Jamal. And, and him pulling out in front of Jamal, is, we believe, is the reason that he took the right, lost control of his uh, scooter, and went up on the sidewalk and hit the wall as well as being struck by the stop sign. So we're bringing a cause of action against both drivers of both vehicles because we believe it was a coordinated effort to try to stop Jamal and the way they were doing it by the police department's own policy prohibits what they were doing. I'm just thinking about also the amount that they could be looking for. Obviously this is, in my talking with him, he gave me more of an estimate as opposed to a specific hard figure. But in thinking about the different services and accommodations that Jamal Gonzalez will need for the rest of his life, so that could include nursing assistance, physical therapy, having a wheelchair, and a myriad of other things overall. Given his current age, he's 24 now, he would need anywhere from 10 to $20 million to pay for his ability to live. Wow. Now, a Providence organization called Direct Action for Rights and Equality has been one of the groups protesting against the police officers' actions on the day of the crash and against police misconduct and brutality more generally. What do they have to say about this case? Right. So, you know, first off, at least in terms of the determinations made by the state's attorney general, um, I spoke to Kian Bryant, who is a managing director at DARE. I wasn't surprised, to be honest. I mean, this is very typical. We see it over and over again. And this is not unique to Rhode Island. They closed ranks and, of course, they protected their own instead of actually getting justice. So it seems like Gonzalez's father and his attorneys were not very surprised by the result of the attorney general's investigation. What do you think that signals about this larger moment. I spoke with Ida Sheriff and um, Jordan Wallenden, and uh, so they're both students. In thinking about my conversation with Jordan, for example, he was describing how this result is sort of emblematic of what he says is the ability for police officers nationally to, quote, live beyond the law and generally avoid consequences for the actions they take. I don't necessarily have the information or the answer for how they should change policing, but in the state that policing is now, they should have consequences to the damage they wreak on communities. 
There have been several other incidents of police brutality that have been in the public eye in recent months in Providence. For example, Providence Police Sergeant Joseph Hanley is currently being tried for allegedly assaulting a man named Rashad Gore, including kneeling on his neck while arresting him. In that case, the Rhode Island Attorney General brought charges against the officer involved. Do activists you spoke to see changes in policy, like making it easier to prosecute police officers as the solution to police brutality? The short answer to that would be no. At least with the activists I spoke with for the story, they feel that the avenue of approaching police brutality by implementing certain policies, that avenue is one that is doomed to fail at the start. And no matter what sorts of policy changes are made, there is no way to prevent violence from recurring. Speaking with students from Brown, the idea that they are most behind is defunding the police department in Providence. Here's Ida Sharif. A lot of times pursuing criminal charges is really like a band-aid fix to the issue, right? Like charging this one officer and then stopping at that. I feel like a lot of people view that as justice, but it's really not. People need to start looking at it more systemically and looking at why is this a repeated pattern? Because it's not just individuals that that lead to this type of thing happening. If we can break away from viewing policing and prisons as the solutions to addiction, like mental health issues, like homelessness, poverty, then we can start to build up alternative solutions to these things that don't punish people for being affected by, you know, systemic issues. Since the summer, different city leaders have gotten behind the idea of defunding the police, so that includes certain city council members. And generally, they would hope to see the money that is being used for the police department and for police officers to be reallocated. But so far, we haven't really seen any substantive action or any specific policies coming to fruition. I'll place an emphasis on the fact that, you know, in speaking with Kia Bryan from DARE, not necessarily everyone who is part of the Providence community is extremely eager to see an abolition of the police department right away. We, we can't move too fast. You know, we can't show all of our hands, um, but then we also have to make sure all of the community is on the same page as far as abolition, as far as defunding the police, as far as what is it, what is our community going to look like once we start defunding the police and getting rid of jobs? You know, what is that going to mean for us? What can we do to replace what we're taking away? Um, and that is where our focus needs to be. So the focus for organizers in Providence is to see how the messaging and the ideas behind defending the police can be brought to communities within Providence and see what sorts of changes from there can be implemented for the future in a way that makes sense for the different nuances and intricacies of Providence as opposed to a sweeping change that doesn't take those sorts of nuances into account. In speaking with Bryant, she mentioned that kind of now her aim is to engage with Providence community members on a regular basis and have conversations with them to think about how their communities can look without police presence and thinking about ways in which community accountability can be fostered within the actual residence as opposed to being under the domain of police officers. Carlos, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. 
In other news, the nonprofit United Way of Rhode Island has pledged $100 million over five years to causes promoting racial equity, including through accessible education, affordable housing, and unemployment for Black, Indigenous, and other people of color in the state. The university has supported United Way over three decades through its fundraising program, Brown Gifts. This has been the Bruno Brief. Our show is produced by Ben Glickman, Corey Gelbicknell, and me. The Bruno Brief is an equal partnership between WBRU and the Brown Daily Herald. I'm Livy Burdett. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.